When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, this is Benjamin Boyce, and welcome to my podcast and video channel, wherein I have the habit of interviewing interesting people. Today's interviewee is Rafe Kelly, who is the founder of Evolve Move Play, which is a Seattle-based company where Rafe takes people out into the natural environment and instructs them on how best to leap around in parkour style. Rafe Kelly was an early adopter of parkour, and he's been training people in that for several years now. He also has his hand in a various number of other movement exercises and movement techniques. He's also heavily invested in the life of the mind. And in this discussion, we get into the ways in which one learns about themselves through interacting with the physical environment and how that self-knowledge can translate into a better, more healthy and fuller intellectual life. And by intellectual life, I don't mean necessarily just sitting around reading books, but also shuffling around sentences on all of these various platforms that all of these various sentences are being shuffled around within. So that being said, there's the overview. Here is Rafe Kelly. Statistically, parkour is one of the safest sports. Um, They just did a recent research on this. I think it came out of Denmark. Um, I can find that resource for you. But basically, they found that... uh, that parkour um, was safer than like gymnastics or rock climbing or soccer. Uh, we did this research when when I was teaching at uh, Parkour Visions as well. Uh, we would uh, so injury rates for sports are calculated per thousand practice hours. Okay. Um, so, like uh, you know, soccer has a per thousand practice hour has seven injuries on average per thousand practice hours. Um, like. Gymnastics has three per practice hour. Indoor rock climbing is about the same. And we found that our rate at uh, Parkour Visions was about two per practice, uh, per, per thousand practice hour. Mm-hmm. So, um, um, so it's very low, actually. And that seems to be the case even in outdoor uh, practice. And I can also attest to this from the perspective, and this is more anecdotal, but, um, you know, my, my older brother – I uh, was a high-level snowboarder and a paintball player, and then my younger sister was uh, a um, a, pro- a semi-professional snowboarder, and so I knew a lot of people in those industries. And if you talk to people who are veterans of the snowboarding industry, like they are held together with scotch tape, right? They've got multiple knee surgeries, multiple broken collarbones, um, multiple w- long limb fractures. Yeah, and, who would have thought hurtling yourself down a mountain would result in <laughs> <laughs> such a bodily yeah. harm? But the, the interesting thing is, for the most part, parkour athletes don't have that kind of history. Like, you know, we get a lot of 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 minor injuries. We get a lot of like sprained ankles, sprained fingers. Um, you know, just little lots of abrasions and scrapes. Um, but yeah, there's not so much you know need for surgery, long term brain damage type stuff in our sport. And do you think that that has to do with the naturalness of the activity? Your company's called Evolve Move Play, and a part mm-hmm. of your philosophy is that you've developed things based on a evolutionary understanding of what the human being is. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, yeah, essentially, we're just training 
human locomotive capacities, the real basics of human locomotion. Um, and obviously, we're taking that to a very high level. But the fundamentals are really, really universal to human beings. The big difference between parkour and other extreme sports um, is that um, we don't have any kind of force amplifiers, I guess. Because uh, like this is a term that comes out of like self-defense, right? If you're in a fight, a knife is a force amplifier. But we can think about it similarly. Like your ability to do crazy stuff is amplified by being on a snowboard. You can just go faster. Same thing on a skateboard, wakeboard, um, mountain bike, rollerblades. All of those allow you to go faster than a human being's nervous system was really designed. Okay. So essentially when you fall down in parkour um, – you're falling at a speed, unless you're at height, that is really uh, manageable for a human being to respond well to. But if you're going 70 miles an hour on skis, it's like it's just hard to – you can't respond well to that. Yeah, so the human being's uh, calibrated for gravity, basically. Yeah, the human being's calibrated for the types of movements that are kind of at the center of our sport. And also we don't have um, so much player interaction. And that's obviously where a lot of injuries happen in other sports is when you're getting impacted by somebody else. Okay. So I just watched one of your podcasts called Moving Like a Human. And in that, you speak about how the practice of parkour, it's kind of like the golf. You're you're playing against yourself or or you have to check in and get to know your own self. And the, the objects in the environment are more about you your interaction with them rather than I guess all the calculations involved when you add a force amplifier or when you add teammates into it, then the chaos. Yeah. I mean, I I suppose in some sense, all of these things are ways of revealing the self to right. Or of, of cultivating the character, right. You're, you're challenging yourself, right. And a challenge, like, you know, you get up on a, you know, if you're dropping in on a wave, right? You're, you're dropping in on a 30 foot wave and surfing. Uh, that's psychologically, it's not so dissimilar to doing a jump in parkour. And either way, it's like a test of your honesty to yourself. It's like saying to myself, I can do this or I can't do this. And if you, if you lie to yourself and you think, Oh, I can definitely do this. And I, and you're not ready, that wave's going to pound you or that jump's going to smash you. Um, and so you you learn to be uh, to be smart. You learn to be reactive and creative and be able to solve problems. You learn to be honest with yourself, and you learn to have courage over time. You learn to take on more and more challenging things. You grow yourself as a human being. I think that uh, I would say that parkour and other flow sports, uh, things like surfing, skiing, snowboarding, um, they all share this 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 ability to kind of control your access to the flow channel. So this is an idea that comes from Mihai Csikszentmihalyi's work. But basically, human beings want to be challenged. Um, when we're when we're insufficiently challenged, uh, we at, we we atrophy and our, we feel apathetic about life. Okay. Right? Everyone knows if you like break an arm and you're put in a cast that arm's going to shrink. And that's essentially what happens to every aspect of your character, of your physical capacities, of your emotional capacities, when they're not exposed to some level of challenge. You need constant challenge in order to just sustain yourself. Um, When you're optimally challenged, 
you grow and it's highly, highly engaging and exciting. And it's the optimal experience of life is associated with being challenged just enough. When you, uh, when you're excessively challenged, that's what produces anxiety and chronic stress. And so the, the idea of like the flow idea that, you know, the science of optimal experiences, Mihai Csikszentmihalyi talks about is like, how do we get ourselves as much as possible in that flow channel. And it's like, you know, he, he identified as about 3% past whatever your current maximum capacity is. If you're challenged at that level, um, you will tend to, to fall into these flow states, which are associated with extremely rewarding neurohormonal states, right? High dopamine, high adrenaline, um, high serotonin, Internal opioids, internal cannabinoid systems are all getting turned on when you're in this flow experience. So it's highly rewarding. And it's also associated with massively improved learning outcomes. So mm-hmm. when you're playing a sport or you're doing something like soccer or football, uh, my job as the opponent is to take you out of the flow state. Okay. Right? Okay. I don't want you to be in the flow state. So our access to the flow state in team sports is um, – is harder to get, right? We all know when we see an athlete who's in the zone, right? Who's unconscious that 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 something special is happening. Hmm. What well, seems to be the case is that when you take a, when you make the opponent the environment instead of somebody else, uh, the athlete can can become really sensitive to to providing themselves exactly the right amount of challenge, hmm. and and so um, this is a kind of Stephen Kotler really developed this idea in a book called The Rise of Superman. But he he pointed out that if you look at the extreme sports or the flow sports, the speed of of improvement and skill that you're seeing in those sports, and it, you know, parkour is a really great example of that. But again, we could talk about, you know, whitewater kayaking and you'd see the same thing that over the last 30 years, the stuff that people are capable of has expanded at a rate that is completely unlike what we're seeing in team sports or gymnastics or, um, or anything else. It's like in these sports where people are self-organizing their level of challenge and they're interacting with their environment, um, they're able to access flow and then they're able to, to learn at tremendously impressive rates. Well, it well, seems it like, seems if, like there's if there's a, a- exponential factor happening in certain sports isn't there something is doesn't have to do somewhat with the uh human beings watching other human beings seeing what is possible in that and then adding that kind of like a collective uh storehouse of what i can do oh that's that's what's possible if i get to if i master that stuff then i can push it further Mm -hmm. Is that kind of yeah, what's going absolutely. On? You know, um, this is actually something that Kotler talks about in The Rise of Superman. Like the speed at which skateboarding improved, um, improved massively once like VHS tapes were <laughs> regularly around. Because now everyone could see what the best athletes were doing. And parkour is really the sport that rose with YouTube, right? Mm. So social media as a, as, a, as a technology that allows us to essentially participate in a common process of skill development around the entire world um, was arose essentially at the same time that parkour kind of exited France and became a worldwide phenomenon. Mm. And so we've been able to 
to uh, to benefit from that and see this incredible rise in skill really rapidly. So in sports, you're dealing with your body, specifically with parkour, you're dealing with getting to know who you are, learning how to trust yourself. But I think that the uh, in a way of thinking of things, the opposite of distrusting yourself is surprising yourself. And I'm mm-hmm. wondering what what experiences you've had of, of just discovering new abilities or new knowledge almost just in relationship with your body or, and does the idea of the subconscious or the unconscious, like kind of come in there? Is there mental resources that announce themselves in certain States? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, I know you're, you're also interested in, uh, in John Verveke's work. And that's something that, you know, is obviously something I've dug really deep into and he's been talking about insight, right? And uh, one way to look at flow is flow is an insight cascade, right? Hmm. So you're having, you're, you're, you're essentially integrating and kind of reformulating knowledge in ways that allow, makes it more applicable. And that's happening like moment to moment really rapidly when you're in the flow state. So, you know, generally when you're in, engaged in physical practice, you know, we tend to think that we're going to see some sort of linear progress. But a lot of times progress, you know, it may start fairly linear and it'll go through linear periods, but then you'll have plateaus. And then occasionally you have these leaps. You'll have moments that you'll just unexpectedly be able to do something. And uh, it's quite an interesting thing to experience when you're, you look at a skill for, you know, ages. And then one day it'll just feel right to you. And you, and as you cultivate yourself and as you go through this process, you start recognizing those moments when, when the, the, the nervous system essentially signals to you, you know, this is, you're ready for this. You can try this and it's going to be successful. Um, and when you have that, you'll have, it, it is a feeling like an epiphany. Like when you've figured something out, it's really rewarding. Like, boom, I have, I have a capability that, that I haven't had before. And it is something that um, you can't think your way towards, right? Or, you know, you don't, you don't get there by just cogitating. It is a, a subconscious, intuitive kind of leap. It's almost like a imagination is really powerful in these, in these places too, right? You, you may know how to do things. You have knowledge, but you have to imagine yourself doing them and, and the moment that you can do something is like the moment that your imagination is sufficiently fleshed out hmm. that it's, it's like the real thing has happened. Yeah. And then you've, you've, you're embodied you're, it's, it's in your nervous system. It's in your body, the thing that, that you're trying to achieve. And then it's suddenly there and you can look at it and you can analyze it and you can try to, to, to figure out how you're going to do it. And that helps. Right. But it never gets you all the way there. It's always something in in the body that really tells you yeah. when you're ready. You have to be on the verge of practicing it or about to do it or in, in the act of doing and yeah. engaging with it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, I'm a really analytical person by nature. I'm very kind of, I, li- I like to read books. I always, I have an older brother who's really smart and he, um, he doesn't really, he, up until maybe five years ago or so, he didn't really read books at all. Um, and so I'd, I'd be telling him, oh, I read all this evolutionary psychology literature and now I understand some of these male and female differences. And he'd look at me like, what are you stupid? Like, like every, like you just, 
that's just how people are. I've known that since I was 15. I just watch people, right? One of those kind of brothers. Okay, I guess. Yeah. He just, you know, he, he's highly observant of people and he pays attention to what's going on in his environment. Whereas I was always sort of like the person who thought that all the answers were in books, right? And if, if, if I read it, it was true. Um, it was sort of the way that my mind worked when I was young. And then through the work that I've done, you know, I'm continually revealed how much propositional knowledge uh, misses. Can we define uh, propositional knowledge? Yeah. Vervecki yeah, brings that up, but I want my Yeah, uh, I love this. I love this. I think that this is such a useful heuristic that Vervecki offers. So he says that, you know, we have different ways of knowing something, and we can divide these into um, kind of four primary uh, um, areas. We have a propositional area, a procedural area, a perspectival area, and a participatory area. So I can describe to you the what it is to do a Kong vault, right? Hmm. And you, you will have a... Uh, a pr- propositional level of knowledge about that. Now, being Wait, able to before go, you go forward, could you give us the propositional definition of yeah, the convault? Sure. What is a convault is a sorry. Um, a convault is a vault where you dive onto your hands and pull your body past your hands as you go over an object. It's like also a frog kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. It's called a kong, like uh, like a king kong. Okay. Um, so it looks kind of like a, a big cat diving, you know, and crossing over a gap. So it's a really aesthetic movement. It's very scary for people because as you're diving, you could clip your feet and then you're going to go face forward. Hmm. But it has this beautiful aesthetic. So it's really a, kind of a, an archetypal movement in parkour that people are trying to achieve. So I can tell you, okay, you need to, you know, you need to load your hips. You need to have one foot uh, behind one foot in front. You need to swing your arms at the same time that you're taking off. You need to grab the thing, push down and pull back. Um, and you know, I could give you a really beautiful description of it and you'd be like, yeah, I totally understand what a, what a Kong vault is. Um, but doesn't mean you can do it. Right. On the flip side, um, if you're a kid who just moves a ton, you might've done a Kong vault and have no idea what it is. Right. Yeah, it's not. A, it's not. It doesn't exist propositionally for you. Now, this is something that uh, Gene Piaget discovered, which was that uh, if you let kids play, they will develop games, and they they can act out the game. But if you take them out of the game and ask them to describe the rules, they can't actually give you a coherent description of the rules. Yeah. So they know procedurally. And this is um, another example I like to give of of uh, kind of procedural knowledge that you have that you don't know you have. Um, is there's all these weird grammatical rules. You have tons of grammar that you know that you don't know you know. Yeah. So, for instance, um, you uh, the English people like to say bish bash bosh, but nobody would ever say bosh bash bish. Yeah. When we make nonsense words, for whatever reason, we always go from like the slenderest vowels to the longest vowels. Huh. So we t- say tick tack and not tack tick. Okay. Huh. Right. Um, and. Once you point that out, everyone recognizes that that's true. And that's how we do that. Um, but they didn't know that they knew that. So that's a that's a procedural knowledge that doesn't have propositional knowledge. Then I don't have – I still like I'm still struggling a little bit with the distinction between what um, Verveke calls prop, uh, perspectival and participatory. Mm-hmm. Um because I think they're kind of connected. And I, I recognize in some of his old talks he talks about perspectival only. But – Perspectival is like what it's like to experience being 
the 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 actor, the agent engaging. Yeah, there's a narrative aspect. Yeah. That's how he describes it. Yeah, so something like, uh, you know, I think about, I will never have a perspectival knowledge of being a mother, right? Okay. My wife has that knowledge now. She didn't have it before she had a child. Hmm. And that's perspectival in some sense. It's also participatory, right? Or we have a knowledge of what it is to engage in marriage together. Mm-hmm. Right. That's a participatory. It's it's a it's relational. Um, but the way that my wife felt when she held a baby for the first time, that's, you know, that had come out of her body. Yeah. That's a perspective that that I can never I can never completely share. Nobody can completely share. But well, some only other women who've had that same experience who had a, a child come through their body and sit in their arms. Mm-hmm. So these are the four levels of knowledge. Um, and uh, and. You know, we, as Verveke says, we, as a culture, we fall in love with the propositional. So by manipulating propositional knowledge that we're able to engage in science. Mm-hmm. And science, of course, is incredibly powerful. Uh, but you you can't actually science your way to competence in movement. You have to practice movement. And you have to engage in the development of procedural and perspectival and participatory knowing. Mm-hmm. Um and, uh, and in the same sense, you know, you can't, you can't be competent in dancing, you know, via science. You can't be competent in, in, uh, in courtship via science. Mm-hmm. So, so much of what we actually want to do in our lives, what we actually gain meaning from in our lives, uh, propositional knowledge doesn't actually take us there. Yeah. It helps us share it and codify mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. And and pass it on at least in its rudimentary yeah. skeletal form we can pass it on. But yeah, I can give people in- I can give people some insight into into marriage through you know some set of explicit rules that I've developed through the 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 way that I've been married to my my spouse and maybe that'll be useful to them. Um, but their readiness for that is often only because they have some sort of implicit experience that that then calls out the pattern from. Oh, okay. I was this that entire chunk of our discussion uh, leads me to another question that I had for you uh, in teaching somebody how to interact with the environment and teaching them parkour or in being a teacher in whatsoever. There's kind of two main ways of being a teacher. And and one kind of is relying on your charisma and your understanding to shape the student. And another seems to be using your understanding to to uh, and your knowledge and your charisma to to set the environment for the student to then achieve learning on their own. Like there's kind of a guru, a guru way of doing it. And I mean that in the negative sense, I know it doesn't always mean negative sense. Um, and then there's this other way. And I, I'm wondering if, if stepping out of the propositional or, or just in, in your years in teaching, how do you, how have you grown and developed in being a teacher? And, yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of interesting kind of stuff within that. So, um, the analogy that I like to give is when I was young as a teacher, I had a, a lot of propositional knowledge about movement and I viewed it as my kind of uh, role as the teacher to to give the student access to that knowledge, to to kind of, you know, imagine that I was like they were empty cups and I was a, a, a saucer full of a uh, pitcher full of, uh, of, of knowledge. And I was just going to pour it out into their, their heads. Um, and I, 
I had a really interesting conversation with one of my students, one of my apprentices who became a teacher uh, within our school, Parkle Visions, where she said that, you know, kind of I was all about getting the right information, the right progression for the students. And she was all about creating the right experience for the student. And that really it elicited a lot. It, it kind of gave me a string of insights and epiphanies just thinking about that. And one of the, the things, one of the ways that I started thinking about that was actually through the lens of the hero's journey, right? The student essentially comes into the training as, uh, as someone who, let's say they have a problem. Um, maybe that problem is just that they'd like to be able to do something that they can't currently do, but, but they come to, to do that and they're going to go on a journey of, some kind of struggle of overcoming fear of, you know, descending into the abyss of recognizing what they don't know, all those things. And then eventually they're going to get to, to, to uh, achieve something through that. And what they achieve is always theirs. Right. And the, the teacher's role is as a guide. And, you know, when we look at the archetypal guide, you know, one of the critical aspects of them is that they recognize that the story isn't about them. Right. So when Frodo has to, um, you know, confront throwing the ring into Mount Doom, Gandalf's not there. Hmm. And when Harry Potter has to confront Voldemort, Harry uh, Dumbledore's not there, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? Um, and and so I started to think that you know that it was really valuable as a teacher to 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 kind of to recognize that it's that you're not conducting your story with these people as the extras in it. Okay. You're the guide for all of these individual people's stories. Hmm. Yeah. And then, um, uh, so then as I moved into teaching out in nature, what I found was that I had, let's say, a very explicit way of teaching based on kind of progressions um, and, and, and breaking things down into atomized pieces, kind of mechanically building up a skill. And that was fairly successful. But when I was teaching people in the woods, I had discovered all of a sudden that a lot of my progressions were unnecessary, that that people would learn the skill that I wanted them to learn um, without having to go through the progressions that I had designed. And this was quite uh, challenging for me initially because it felt like, why am I here? Like, <laughs> this, is, this is my identity as a teacher is being really good at building these progressions. And all of a sudden, just changing the environment means that that that's not necessary. Could you give us an example or why do you think it was that nature spoke direct, started speaking directly to the students? Yeah. So, um, I will, uh, I'm going to, so that, that has to do with one of these ideas that you really proposed, which was, you know, is it giving information to the student or is it creating an environment that allows the student to self-organize? So there's a top down versus bottom up approach to the movement, right? So, uh, so yeah, I'm going to give an example and then we can maybe even talk a little bit more clearly about what a top-down versus bottom-up thing is and task constraints and all that. But to start with, we'll take a skill, real classic skill that we use in parkour called a step vault. So in a step vault, you're going to put one hand on top of an object and then you're going to put your opposite side foot on top of that object. Then you're going to bring the leg in the middle through and step down on the other side. Okay, So it's like walking over the top of an object using one hand to support you. Okay, so this can be quite challenging for people uh, in some environments, and they often struggle with kind of having balance and and being able to operate the skill well. So when we were 
teaching in the gym, we used to sort of put people on the ground, have them go, you know, start in a squat, put one hand down, pick the leg up, move the leg back and forth. Then when they got to the object, we'd have them put a hand on the object and then a foot on the object, lift the leg up, put the leg back down, go through and kind of build up the pieces. Um, and then I, I knew that they would tend to make specific errors at each stage of that process. Sure. And then I would be ready to cue them to say, okay, here's the mistake you made. Here's our fix for it here. Here's a drill to go fix that. So when we started moving around in nature, I noticed that a lot of people could just do a step fault without ever being told what a step fault was. Um, and it was just, a, it had to do with a change in the environment. Um, so there's this idea now in, um, in motor learning theory of what's called constraint led approaches or task constrained movements. The idea is that if you want to change someone's movement, a lot of times the most effective thing is not to give them a verbal description of what the skill should look like, but to change the environment in such a way that it will help them self-organize the movement. So uh, a classic example would be if you have a, a, a basketball player whose shot doesn't have enough arc on it, you can tell him you know, to put more arc on his shot. You can tell him to change his hand positioning or his elbow positioning to achieve more arc. Or what you can actually do is just put an object in front of the hoop that he has to shoot over. So that would be a task constraint. Okay. Um, and another example of that that's specific to what we do is um, in kind of movement classes, parkour classes, uh, animal flow, movement, whatever, um, CrossFit, there's, they teach a bear walk, right? It's a, just a basic crawling pattern. And that is a contralateral pattern. So that is when one hand moves forward, the opposite foot is moving forward. Hmm. As opposed to ipsilateral, which would be both hands move forward. So when you walk, you walk contralaterally, right? The arms that is swinging forward is opposite to the leg that is swinging forward. Um, when you put people on the ground, the most stable way for them to to walk quadrupedally is the same contralateral pattern as when you're when you're walking um, and it's what a baby will do naturally when they crawl however about 50 to 60 percent of students in the average kind of introductory movement class will kind of adopt a ipsilateral pattern and it's very difficult to cue them out of it and they're often extremely confused. If you say contralateral, that's like way too complex. Um, if you say opposite hand, opposite foot, it's like they just don't get it. Uh, so that's a kind of a big problem for, for people in, in the movement industry. Um, what we discovered is that really if you just put them on a tree branch and ask them to crawl down it, they'll automatically do a contralateral pattern. Because there's only a way for the body to organize and create stability in that environment. Hmm. So the, you can think of the, the natural environment as having uh, a more informational set of constraints that allow the, the, the motor learning system to effectively self-organize much more, much better than we see in a gym environment. So a synthetic environment, is it the subtraction of all that information-rich landscape that leads to something you have to train out of you? Or are there is that the addition of expectations or of cultural a cultural environment that also shapes that interaction? Um, perhaps there's the, the 
you know, perhaps the second part is, is also important, but I suspect that the primary thing is literally that it's just not informational, right? That asking people to do quadrupedal across a, a flat space of rubber matting, uh, doesn't contain the information that asking them to move around on all fours in a tree does or on rocks outside does. Mm-hmm. And that, that, that basic sort of, um, information in the landscape is what the motor learning system is really evolved to tune itself to in order to create sophisticated movement in order to create good movement hmm. Hmm. and you you were talking about top down versus bottom up organization does that also affect when somebody's in a self organizing state you've you've set the playground Mm-hmm. Uh, you've chosen the playground and you've probably given like some words and told them, okay, go and do this. They self-organize that doing where, and you don't have to really do that. Does, does the top down versus bottom up work within that? Or, or are you just talking about in the, uh, in the way that you are building information or conveying information? Yeah. It's just, I, I don't know, you know, how familiar audience will be with that, but I think it's useful to, to, to kind of clarify what that means. Right. So like a, a top down control would be, that there's a central authority that's issuing all of the commands. So a, um, you know, the classic example would be, uh, like a central uh, command and control economy, like a communist economy, you know, so everything about the economy is supposed to be scientifically designed and effective. And in order to make it all run correctly, it has to be designed by a committee of people. And then every part of it has to be communicated down the chain. And it, um, it's actually a Soviet, uh, a scientist, Nikolai Bernstein, who brought in this understanding of dynamical systems and the movement who pointed out that you really can't do that with the body, that the body doesn't, that there's what he called, um, the degrees of freedom problem. There's too many options for how you can do something for your brain to effectively search the entire space of options, right? So if I want to bring my hand to my mouth, I have all of the the finger joints that I can move, right? Uh, the wrist, the elbow, the shoulder, and then I have multiple muscles crossing that. So there's tons of redundancies in ways that I could achieve this. So my body wants to have a stable pathway where, that brings my hand to my mouth. If I had a uh, a top down control system and it had to search that that entire space for uh, for the most efficient option. It would um, it would be impossible. There's there's it's you know a problem of what's called combinatorial explosion, right? Yeah. The search space is just too big. So what it, what it turns out is that you know there's mechanoreceptors here that are feeding information to here, and there's these feedback loops, and then there's these muscle synergies where you know they tend to act in concert in certain ways, and the structure constrains some of the movements. So I have tons of options. Um, so that there's redundancy, which makes the, the motor program more um, more robust to challenge. So I need to have lots of ways to do it in case something goes with, wrong with something. Um, but then it has uh, it has these kind of path dependence ways that 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 uh, make some things more likely within the landscape. Okay. Of okay. All right. And that's a bottoms up because it's it's not just in the central controller, the the brain. It's in all of the kind of individual pieces, the cells, the organ systems, etc., that all create that. In the same way, uh, a kind of a a capitalist economy, a free market economy, is based on a bunch of different kind of uh, cycles of incentives 
mm-hmm. that then work up and create this complex system, which is really very difficult to control, but that tends to output lots of, of good things. So when you're um, when you're trying to control someone's movement, if you give t- if you try to control every in- independent aspect of it, it's overwhelming and impossible. Mm-hmm. So you have to have we do have to have some level of top down control. Um, cause you have to set intention about what you're doing, right? Or else nothing happens. Uh, and, and certain types of movement respond better to top down control than others. But a lot of times we have defaulted to trying to do too much top down control. Um, and we, we, it develops a sort of paralysis by analysis in athletes. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, the, there's an athlete, uh, there's a, there's something called reinvestment in in motor learning theory which is the idea that if you have a very explicit cognitive model of how a skill is supposed to be done when you're under stress you will tend to reinvest your attention all those different pieces that are supposed to be controlled yeah and then we 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 believe that's one of the reasons why athletes choke under stress yeah because the model itself can't withstand the stress of the moment Exactly. Or the, or the brain can't do, can't mm-hmm. invest itself in this landscape and this other landscape at the same time. Yeah. You have limited attentional resources. Uh, this is another cool thing that Mihai Csikszentmihalyi kind of pointed out. Uh, I can't remember the exact details. I have his book right there. But, uh, but essentially, you, you know, you have a specific amount of, of processing power in your brain at any given time. And there's just only so much information that you have. And there's this vast, I mean, absolutely vast set of things that you could be attending to, mm-hmm. right? Um, how to, how to navigate through that is like the central problem that we have. Movement is a really beautiful place to kind of get an understanding of that. I, I you know, uh, I guess one of my roles among, among many is kind of being the voice of movement mm-hmm. in this kind of conversation about meaning and self-cultivation, yeah. Uh, and I think that, that, that movement is this beautiful place to look at these problems of ecological dynamics and these problems of, of, of what it is to, to recognize what's relevant and move towards it and to cultivate yourself through it. Um, but I just think that it's, it's a particularly meaningful laboratory for that. But those problems that we're talking about of understanding top-down control, of understanding the problem of attention and how to navigate through it and how to realize what is relevant, um, those are the same central problems that bedevil how we live life in general. Yeah. Well, and yeah, and how we live with one another, and how different tribes interact, and all these different systems within systems. Yeah, absolutely. I really like. I could see how the hero's journey can be scaled all the way down from bringing an apple to your face to uh, interacting with a student to getting your your group to go out and and accomplish something together. There, there's something about a narrative. Uh, like that with archetypal so-called structures to it that for whatever reason I can see it overlapping on all these different levels. Yeah. I mean, uh, this reminds me of Peterson and this idea of like harmonies at multiple layers, right? Mm. And something that gives this, this integration of multiple layers of analysis uh, is something that's deeply meaningful. Right. Um, right. Peterson, I mean, Jordan Peterson, if your readers are your, your followers are going to be familiar with that probably. So, when we see a pattern that shows up at the level of like 
motor control. And then we see that that pattern shows up at the level of like application of skill and movement. And then we see that that shows up in your relationships. It's like, well, that's a pattern that becomes really meaningful. And one of the things that I like about one of the ideas that I've got from movement training that I think is really valuable is by exposing yourself to a diversity of movement scenarios, um, you create a more robust motor control system because it helps your nervous system learn to recognize the sort of invariant patterns in movement. The things that you see as a, if you can control this in every situation, if you can do this right in every situation, you're going to be good, not just at parkour, but also martial arts and also football and also this. And when you expose yourself to all those different scenarios, um, it, it teaches your nervous system to become super attentive to the most important things in realizing relevance. Mm. And I think the same thing is true when we start expanding that question outside of movement, right? That we can use these things as tools with intention to begin to train the attention system, how to recognize the most relevant things to pay attention to across the broadest set of scenarios. And, um, you know, if we, if we talk about that heroic archetype, that's one of the kind of the fundamental characteristics of the heroic archetype is the capacity to recognize what the right thing to attend to is mm -hmm, mm -hmm. like, uh, um, in, in Peterson's maps of meaning book, he talks about, uh, basically the hero is Horus. The, the, the Egyptian God Horus is represented by the Falcon, the thing that has vision that can see the problem. Mm -hmm. It's represented by, um, in Marduk as well. Marduk also has eyes all around the back of his head. And then it's the thing that can speak magical words, right? So Christ is the logos, right? The logos is the word that brings the, brings the, the world into being. Um, yeah. Marduk speaks magical words. You know, my own personal kind of favorite representation of that aspect of the hero is Socrates, um, hmm. right? Speak the truth. And then, uh, and then there's the, 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 the hero has the hand, the physical capacity to act in the world, right? So, uh, hmm. and then if we think about what's, what's represented in the brain as the most important aspects of a human being, it's like the tongue and mouth, the eyes and the hand. Yes. Massive impacts in the, you know, that motor homunculus. Um, this is the, the archetypal representation of the most important characteristics of a human being. And so what we want to do, in, in my opinion, is in our physical practices, in our whatever practices we have, we're attending to how do we build the capacity to recognize what to pay attention to, how to pay attention really fully and truly, right? How to articulate what we do, right? Mm -hmm. And how do we act and how do we have the capacity to act? So, um, yeah, that's that's kind of a that brings up what I was kind of going for. And I didn't know if it was possible to take your knowledge and understanding being a teacher, uh, interacting with the physical environment, understanding, uh, you know, just your growth, your own arc of going from parkour, probably in a city into nature. And you've yeah. now like you interact with the tree, almost like that archetypal tree of life is, yeah. is a big core of, of your exercises. <laughs> right. Yeah, uh, and sure. I was wondering, how does that how can that start to translate into how we how discourse operates or 
how people interact with information on a just a pure noetic level uh, mm -hmm. through through video, audio, YouTube, Twitter, social media. And because I bring that up partially because we are having a fraught time with this new technology. I don't think it's going away and I don't think it's sufficient to just say it's unhealthy. Like it's, mm -hmm. it's here, it, our kids are going to do it, uh, their kids are going to do it. So I'm wondering how we can get some grounding um, or, or, or use some wisdom from just hardcore physical reality when we, when we move into the virtual space, if you have any ideas on that. Yeah, it's a big question. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a really interesting one. Like I, I think there's a lot of stuff embedded in that because there's, there's like a premise here uh, that, um, well, like – I guess I'm going to kind of reframe maybe the question and, and, and just talk about it from my perspective. Uh, one of my central ideas is that we, we have the problem of updating culture, right? And uh, like Peterson talks about the idea that, that the death of God destabilized Western culture. Verbeke also talks about this. And, and so the idea is that we had, you know, we had this central idea in Christ and, and that that actually was this sort of grounding prior that actually gave uh, specifics to like our theory of, of law, gave specifics to everything. And so when we lost that, it destabilizes the whole way we look at everything in our culture. And, um, and, uh, you know, the way that I've looked at this is, again, because I have that evolutionary biology background, I look at it as, a, as, a, as an evolutionary problem. So when you um, – if you look at a – if you take an animal and you put it under very strong selective pressure in a new environment, it's going to tend to accumulate uh, costly adaptions, right? So will it adapt to the new environment? will adapt to the new demands, but it will adapt in ways that will – will decrease its sort of overall function in other ways. So the classic example of that is sickle cell anemia, right? So malaria is incredible. You know, it's still the biggest killer in the world, I believe, right? Um, it's this incredibly strong selective pressure that people in tropical environments have had. One of the adaptions we've had to that is sickle cell uh, trait. Sickle cell trait gives you an advantage when you have one copy of the gene. Um, when you have two copies of the gene, it basically kills you. You're, I think, basically by your early 20s, um, or maybe earlier. Uh, so, 20, you know, if you have fixation of that gene in your population, 25% of your population is going to die um, before they can reproduce. So that's no good. Um, but malaria is such a strong pressure in that environment that it's it's better than nothing. Now, over time, under the same selective pressures, long enough. Other solutions will arise. Other variations will arise that solve the same problem. Mm -hmm. So, um, so that's that's one way to think about it. And we can actually look at the level of the genetic mechanism and see how this works. Because when genes are segregated during reproduction, they're they're not um, they're not segregated completely gene to gene. So, if you have one gene that's under positive selection or negative selection, it doesn't just it doesn't just increase or decrease in frequency. It, the entire area around it increases or decreases in frequency. So you imagine that all of a sudden only men who played in the NBA were able to have children. Obviously, we would have this huge selection for height all of a sudden. 
Okay. But everything, every gene that coded for height, all of the areas around it would also be moving. Um, And that would change the the genetic architecture of human beings in many sort of very unpredictable ways. Okay. Okay. So I think that mimetic evolution essentially plays out the same way. So we have, uh, you can imagine that, that, uh, that, that the meme of God is a, is a me, it's a, it's like a gene, right? And then you have all these things that are near it, our system of marriage, our idea of natural law. Um, all those things are aware and they all get wiped out. They all get smashed or they all get, you know, uh, destabilized. Yeah, destabilized. When we have, uh, when we have sort of the, the rational materialist philosophical position and science basically destabilize the idea of God. And I think that that's not just, you know, uh, I, I think it's useful to, to see that outside of the spectrum of just that one problem because we, we, we are introducing new ecologies into our experience of being human beings all the time because essentially I think of culture as a set of technologies like um, – Verveke likes to talk about psychotechnologies, right? Culture is like an accumulation of psychotechnologies that allow us to effectively interface our biology with the environment. And the environment is our economic system and our ecological system and, you know, other human beings. So when we introduce something like a smartphone, it's, uh, hmm. it, it shifts the ecology of human relationships entirely. And we, it, we, we have an incredible problem because those changes are happening faster and faster and we're not, and you know, we don't know how we're adapting. We don't know how we're, we're changing. Yeah. So, you know, when I was dating, when I was in my early, you know, when I was in my late teens and early twenties, online dating was just becoming a thing. But like, it's kind of shameful. It was like, if you, if you were like on, on okay Cupid, that was kind of like, man, you can't get a date in real life. Like now I think like most people find their dates through online. Um, and you know, what's being missed there? What's changing? How is that uh, changing people's behavior? So my, my take on that is I'd actually like to slow things down. I think that we've, we've, uh, we've milked the scientific method and the enlightenment thing for most of the positive that it can derive for us, at least us in the Western world. Obviously, we want to bring up, you know, people in the third world to the same standard of livings that we're experiencing. Okay. But I don't think that human life will improve because, you know, because we have VR. I don't think that human life will improve because we have flying cars. Like, I think that we're really damn comfortable now. And, you know, mm. materialism has, has done a lot of good for us. But we're we're suffering anxiety, depression, all of these other problems. Um, and I think that we need to invest ourselves in developing wisdom, right? Mm-hmm. And that wisdom is, is something that has to integrate not only not propositional knowledge, but those other layers of knowledge. Yeah. Well, with, with regards to propositional knowledge within, even within Verveke's series, Awakening from the Meaning Crisis, he's trying to make an argument for something other than propositional knowledge. And he's making it out of 
propositional knowledge. And everything that we're interacting, when we interact with sentences on the internet, it's all propositions. But I, I firmly believe that there is a way of using propositional knowledge to, to interact on other layers, such as storytelling, such as the, the quality of human connection that you gain through the medium of propositional knowledge. And, and so I don't think that necessarily the enemy is the form so much as the way that we're interacting with the form. And, and I wonder if the one thing that we do learn when we interact with our own bodies is, uh, do you, have you seen in your students and yourself like a better awareness of what that other person is or, or oh, what yeah. another person is? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's really strong research about this, right? So one of the super interesting things, particularly about rough and tumble play, is that rough and tumble play uh, is something that we have sort of pathologized in our culture as violence and toxic. as toxic masculinity, right? <laughs> um, so little boys are not allowed to wrestle in school and little girls for that matter too. Um, but the research shows actually that time spent engaged in rough and tumble play is highly associated with the development of empathy right? through through interacting physically with somebody we're mapping them into our nervous system through experiencing intense emotion intense joy occasional pain seeing somebody else react to the physical experience that we're that we're that we're you know participating in with them we're actually improving our ability to have theory of mind, improving our ability to have empathy and have an emotional response to what someone else is going through. Hmm. So um, we know that that physical practices do this, right? Um, and I believe that through, you know, uh, the locomotive play, the natural parkour, these other things that we do, um, we're we're increasing that the the capacity to be aware of the state of your body and aware of uh of and and, and capable of regulating it so um I, I don't know if you perhaps watched this uh podcast i did but you might find it really interesting with my friend mark walsh he has a he's a embodiment teacher um i just went to do a workshop with him called embodied yoga principles but he has this nice breakdown where he says, essentially, what you're trying to do is become aware of the states that you're embodying and experiencing, the social states that the people around you are experiencing and how those are happening in a relationship, and then to become more capable of regulating those, right? So, you know, I go on Twitter and I see lots of things that make me upset or angry or self-righteous right okay yeah okay so now i have a reaction to that right and this is this is this is what fuels social media right now is the fact that uh this these sort of propositional sentences floating around on the internet are capable of creating these embodied reactions in people right you don't have to respond to that person on twitter who said that thing that you disagree with because because it propositionally is just in your head, you have to respond to them because it has an embodied impact on you. Yes. And as you develop more awareness of that, you have more ability to regulate it, to say mm -hmm. to yourself, that's not actually threatening to me, right? Mm -hmm. Or my intention, my goals, the person I want to be is served by responding this way or is not. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think that a lot of the 
uh, a lot of the the intensity that the the reactivity that we're seeing in these online communication forms part of it is that the medium itself is missing all this information that we need but part of it is also that i think that we're raising the the most body stupid and emotionally stupid generation of humans that ever existed huh body stupid yeah are you familiar with the idea of the flynn effect the fun effect the flynn effect no what is that so um james flynn is an iq researcher a psychometrics researcher who discovered that um essentially iq test writers were having to renorm the iq test every 15 years or something because iqs were going up and this was something that was happening in every country in the world essentially so um so it it looked like i think you know one and a half points of iq were gained per generation or something like that over the last 150 years and so there was a question like why is this happening and there's a few different theories about it Partially, it seems to be like, you know, nutrition has improved. People have access to more micronutrients, iodine. But what seems to be the biggest thing is actually that people have access to cognitive challenge. And cognitive challenge helps people grow mentally the same way that physical challenge helps people grow physically. So um, things like smartphones, things like computers, things like libraries, things like uh, public schools all sort of have – create an environment in which everyone has the opportunity to be sort of sufficiently uh, cognitively challenged to to optimize their IQ. Uh, so I think this is true, but I think that at the same time, we've set up a series of institutions that have clearly meant that more and more people are insufficiently physically challenged, mm-hmm. right? And we can see this because on average, you know, obesity is a huge thing, but it's not only are people obese, they're physically weak. Um, if I remember correctly, and, you know, uh, people should take this to grain of salt, but I believe in like 1990, um, the standard to get into the Marines was 16 pull-ups. And that's been lowered to three pull-ups right now. Oh, wow. Okay. Jeez. Huh. So, you know, um, Tim Kennedy uh, was on the Joe Rogan podcast and he was talking about this. He was talking about how, you know, essentially you cannot get enough special forces guys anymore because there's just not people in the population who are physically capable of taking on those roles anymore. And so every special forces unit in the military, which is almost all like this is a especially a problem because our military relies intensely on special forces now. They're under they're under. Um, they have insufficient soldiers in every unit because there's just not enough people who who qualify. Mm-hmm. So we, we have an epidemic of weakness. And I think that we have an epidemic of emotional weakness at the same time because play, to go back to what we started with, is actually where people cultivate emotional sensitivity and intelligence. And this, is, this connects to Jonathan Haidt's thesis in The Coddling of the American Mind by basically – you know, through the combination of the rise of video games, you know, the, the, the kind of moral panic around, you know, child safety that happened in the early 90s, um, the, you know, the rise of social media and the, the rise of this culture of just coddling children physically in schools, um, we've removed so much of the potential for kids to engage in 
unstructured, freeform, risk-taking play. And that's actually where they would naturally develop self-regulation of emotion, of fear, of reactivity. They develop the ability to coordinate and communicate effectively to manage conflict. And so we have a generation of people who are essentially have the emotional maturity of four-year-olds who are graduating Mm -hmm. from college. And yeah, and the uh, body maturity of uh, flabby uh, four-year-olds. Yeah, exactly. No, I my... think you bring up the implicitly. There's a, a really good point that you're making. It's that I'm I'm putting words in your mouth. Disagree sure. with me if I'm doing it wrong. But being anti-fragile doesn't mean you're calloused. Being you can be sensitive to other people and and highly empathetic and not be fragile at the same time. And I think the the muscle that regulates both the ability to to proportionally be sensitive to another person and to not be so sensitive with yourself is is gained through a certain form of interaction that you're calling play. Yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, I talk about there's there's this. You know, it's this classic dichotomy. I was listening to uh, to Jordan Peterson talk with uh, with his Bishop Barron. He's talking about the idea of God's justice and God's love. And these two things are, are sort of, you, you have to have these two things. And whether you believe in God or not, it, it's, it's, it's this sort of structure of reality that we need these oppositional qualities in order to create something that is optimal. Um, uh over and over again, we have these these two things, and and one of them that is really relevant to my work is the idea of like being hard and being soft. So, in in Japanese martial arts, this is called go and ju, right? So, there's a school of karate called gojuru, gojuru, which means uh, hard soft school. So the idea is hardness is being able to meet force with force, softness is being able to redirect force. Um, in in training someone you can make them strong you can make them stiff you can make them hard and you make them fragile right this is what happens to lots of people who engage in tons of powerlifting and bodybuilding you know the body looks incredibly intimidating and powerful but if they try to run as fast as they can for 20 meters they'll pop a hamstring hmm. right? they're actually very fragile okay. on the other side you can train someone to be soft and supple and accepting that's yoga right and what happens those people become, you know, mushy, right? They're, they're reeds that just bend and don't unbend. Hmm. Um, and so what we're looking for in developing uh, an athlete is, is a sense of tempering them, like tempered steel that is both stiff and springy. And we want the same thing emotionally, right? I want to be able to be as centered, as strong, as capable of holding my space as possible, and also as able to be sensitive as possible Mm. and and in some sense it's like it's hard to move both in in a positive direction at the same time but then you'll find this weird layering response which is like the stronger you get internally the more you can open yourself emotionally and vulnerably Hmm. and um i've noticed this in myself that like i've become a lot more kind of i would say emotionally literate emotionally vulnerable over the last few years and that's been challenging in some ways because like, uh, well, one of the things that happened was I, you know, I used to be a little bit of a troll on social media and I was just like, you know, I, I liked fighting with people on the internet. Um, and then I was like, I went through all this work, like I worked, you know, a lot of this was inspired by having female students and having to, to deal with a kind of different type of mind and saying, how do I interact with 
with women in a way that's going to support them as, as students and they're having these emotional responses. And if I don't, if I'm not aware of my own emotional responses, huh. I can't meet them and I can't be the right support for them. Yeah. And so like opening myself up emotionally. And then all of a sudden it's like all the negative comments on my videos hurt me. <laughs> right. <laughs> And I was like, ah, you know, I was like, I can't handle this. I don't want to fight with people on the internet anymore. Huh. And then, then, then there's another layer that happens where it's like, all of a sudden it's like, I, I feel like I find the place where I can be strong and be centered and then also have that vulnerability. Okay. And, and I found that, that as I found that it, it has a really interesting impact on people. Like people, people will point it, will point back at me and say, this is what I see in you. You know, like the ability to be really strong and really gentle. Hmm. Um, and, uh, and it's interesting how, how many people feel like they aren't seeing that or like they're missing that or like it's really inspiring to be able to be in the presence of, uh, of the capacity for showing strength and showing gentleness at the same time. How, is that been fed by your adventures in fatherhood too? I'm sure. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I've got three kids. Um, they certainly they can hear them. That's why I bring them up. Yeah. 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 They're running around <laughs> in the background there. Um, absolutely changed me a lot as a person being a father. It's, it's really funny. I, I used to joke with my wife, um, that I, I just never cried. Right. Like, um, like I would go five years without crying. Uh, and, and then, you know, after my kids were born, it's like every time we watch a story that has like a touching family moment, like I'm tearing up. Like I can't read, I'm, I'm reading like stuff that's like really not even that emotional to my kids. And it has like this tiny little, like I'm reading Harry Potter to my kids and, and like these somewhat emotional scenes, like, you know, uh, Oh, uh, here's an example. So, uh, you know, Harry Potter is an orphan, right? He doesn't have a family. In the first Harry Potter, um, Ron, his best friend's mother, sends him a uh, a a sweater and like some candy or something for Christmas, and it's like the first time he's ever gotten a Christmas gift. And Ron's like, "Oh, these sweaters are ugly and horrible." And Harry's like, really touched that someone wanted to send him a sweater. Yeah. And I'm sitting there with my kids reading this, and like, you know, just tears are coming running down my face. <laughs> Um, and that's totally not how I experienced Harry Potter the first like few times that I read it. So, yeah, that's, it's really fascinating that you bring up how women have, uh, interacting with women have, have caused, uh, another field or landscape of growth for you. Uh, yeah. and, and, uh, and the, I guess that might, there might've been a step in that of saying of, of having a stereotypical reaction of like, there's no emotional involvement in this stop the, the emotion and then moving beyond that is that something that you had to confront with you of of of, of watching yourself not having emotions because you've shut them down or, or just just saying oh i guess this is a part of the landscape too mm -hmm. i mean i would say that you know i think that temperamentally i'm just not very i'm not very high in negative emotion mm -hmm. like i've done the big five personality test and i score in like the zeroth percentile for you know, negative emotionality. Um, so in that is, that is the male pole, but I'm not only, you know, 
I'm not only typically male, I'm hyper male. I'm way beyond the normal level uh, that that is typical for a man in, in that particular trait. And my older brother is also like that. And so I think that we both grew up sort of recognizing that that this was the way that a man, this is how men were different from women. And that we mm. like being like this, that it's nice not to feel negative emotions, right? <laughs> like, it seems convenient. Yeah. Um, my little sister is uh, has a pretty strong negative emotionality, and it, um, and she, you know, I had a hard relationship with her, I guess, when we were young, and so I got that association of like, oh, I don't want to, I don't want that, I don't want to be away from that. Um, and so I guess you know, I had a lot of pride in not being particularly emotional when I was young, um, and. And then, you know, I was, I was teaching, I was teaching parkour when I was 25, 26, I guess. And we were doing these really intense physical conditioning exercises as part of it, right? We do these really intensive circuits. And for a while, every woman who trained with me, who trained under me had cried in one of my classes. And, um, and my reaction when people cried was to be really concerned, <laughs> Because, like, for me, crying was very unusual. And so I felt like, you know, it was a disaster anytime one of my students cried. And so then I would I would sort of probably draw too much attention to them. Um, this was something – I saw this happen with my wife. My wife tended to get frustrated and sort of cry in movement classes. And we had a coach, a gymnastics coach, who would, like, sort of loudly ask her what was going on in front of the entire group, which would make her cry way more. Mm. So I tried to avoid that, but I was still probably not subtle enough in the way that I was responding to uh, the women in my classes. So I had a, an apprentice, Janine, who is one of our coaches, who's learning to coach under me. And she took me aside one day and she said, like, look, you haven't cried in five years. But for these women who are your, in your classes, it's really not a big deal. Like, stop treating it like, a, like it's a big deal. And it was like magic. Like, as soon as I had the idea that, like, crying wasn't a disaster, they just mm. stopped crying. It was like, oh, huh. it just, it just, the, the tears dried up. Um, and I just sort of learned to be a lot more subtle in the way that I responded to that. Yeah. And, um, you know, a few years later, uh, well, quite a few years later, I, we were running down the, this Creek at the big event return of the source I mentioned earlier. And I came up, I had kind of gone back to check on the trailing part of the group and I came up to the kind of the early, the, the people at the, the, the front of the line and one of the girls had lined up this jump, which was, um, over the Creek, but right behind the jump was a waterfall. And so the jump wasn't too difficult for her, but the situation was really scary. And one of the other students who's also a parkour coach was kind of kind of giving her the raw, raw, you can do it, um, speech. And, which was good, but I felt like it was a little too much, maybe a little too much pressure on her. So I kind of jumped in and I was like, you know, you can, you, you don't have to do this. You don't have to do anything. If you want to do it, I know a hundred percent that you're physically capable of doing it. We're here to support you. And so she looked at me and she said, is it okay if I cry while I jump? Um, and I said, sure. Yeah. Do whatever you need. And she did the jump and she was crying and she was crying after that she did the jump and she was laughing and, you know, uh, and smiling and 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 we just talked about like this is fine like this is this is you this is your process own it and don't feel ashamed of it hmm. and if that's what you need you know to get through the hard time like let it happen yeah and uh she sent me a message later and 
said that, you know, like whenever those those emotions were welling up for her, like that moment of jumping through the air would come up. And so it's experiences like that that have really helped me, you know, and I think that um, it's, it's interesting because I get a lot of requests to do work specifically with men, like do men's groups. And so far, I haven't really felt called to do that um, because I actually feel like as a teacher, I grow the most through my interactions with female students hmm. um, because it's it's the biggest stretch for me to meet their needs. But also with the work that we do with all the rough and tumble play and all the connection through overcoming challenge, I feel like it's a really healing place in a very gender um, – uh, skewed uh, not gender skewed, but I, f- I feel like men and women are, are in a really negative place with each other in our culture. Yeah. And, and they don't have, they don't have places to form these connections where it's not sexual. It's, it's, it's a place where you're, you're working in common together and you're overcoming yourself and you're cultivating yourself. And I think that when they see each other in those spaces, it changes how they perceive each other. And it, and it gives them a opportunity to have a conversation that is um, positive some. Okay. Right? Like with all these kind of culture war things, I think the, the, the shift that needs to happen is to stop thinking about these things from a zero-sum dynamic where in order for me to win, you need to lose. And to start thinking like, how do we find the mutual wins? Yeah. The positive-sum dynamics. And I think that... That when you know when you give men and women a chance to engage in rough and tumble play together, they it actually embodies an understanding hmm. of that kind of positive sum dynamic and how to negotiate some of those difficult um, uh, differences. Yeah, yeah. That's uh, I love that that cry leaping is that like a move that you should add to the archetypal uh, parkour that's such a lovely image but yeah. I, just emotional processing you see you earlier you said that you're an analytic uh minded person mm-hmm. and i think that there's there's a certain sort of emotional processing that is connected with the body i've, I've spoken with women like who do a surprise they do a surprise yoga move and then it just bursts out all this emotion and it seems like an embodied emotion but it's not really like a physical pain it's just all this emotion is trapped in these body points so mm-hmm. it goes back to an earlier question about learning to trust yourself but also getting into a relationship where where you start where yourself is starting to talk to you or bringing serving you up things and the way that each person goes about expressing that or processing that is 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 novel or different yeah um a couple things there that are interesting to me but um so i was talking to a friend of mine Thomas Kudish, who's one of the kind of very early adopters of parkour and we're talking about parkour and character and he was saying more than even cultivating your character what parkour does for you is it reveals your character and i think that this is a really profound idea because it's this this idea that we're actually kind of a mystery to ourselves and that through our physical practices, we're actually revealing ourselves. We're, we're, we're mapping our own territory, the territory of ourself. And this is actually incredibly valuable, right? That, that we need those processes. Um, one thing that pops up for me is I, I love Verveke's idea that falling in love is a process of res- reciprocal realization, mm. right? That it rapidly, kind of 
sharing this flow state of, of releasing who you are to someone and, and figuring out who they are, that that's what that experience of feeling in love feels like. And it just, I just made this connection in my head that we have this whole idea of self-esteem and, you know, you are great how you are and love yourself for who you are. And it doesn't seem to work, right? We, it, it seems to increase narcissism without decreasing anxiety and depression. <laughs> <laughs> the worst of both possible worlds. <laughs> right. And so I've had this idea that, that we don't need to cultivate self-esteem. We need to cultivate self-worth esteeming, something I've been talking about for a few years. But it mm. just popped into my head that that part of what our physical practices do to us is actually reveal ourselves so that we can love ourselves. Yeah. Right? Okay. By, 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 by engaging in something that teaches you who you really are. Yeah, you're actually able to fall in love with you, and and that creates that that foundation for self-esteem. Yeah, um, and and part of that is this 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 aspect that um, that emotion is embodied, right? It is it sadness and anger and you know frustration their physical experiences there's there's changes that are happening internally and when you become more aware of them again you have better capacity for regulation of them mm-hmm. one of the things that i've um that i noticed with my brother and i and our relationships with women early on is that um it was it was it was sort of um well, i'm trying to find the right word it was convenient to be low in emotionality um, right. It was like a super even keel. It's like nothing, nothing, nothing bothers me. Um, but it was also, uh, deceptive in a way because actually we're all motivated by mo- emotion. And when that emotion is really powerful and sort of slaps you in the face and says, I'm here, then it forces you to become intelligent potentially in, in, in regulating it. When that emotion sort of exists under the surface and you're dominated by your rational mind, but that rational mind is being driven by these underlying surface, these underlying layers that you're not actually aware of, you know, you can feel like, oh, yeah, I don't actually feel a lot of emotion from moment to moment. And that's nice. Um, But it it can actually make it a lot more difficult for you to develop the emotional literacy that allows real self-transcendence. Yeah. Well, I mean, it can lead to uh, dangerous states or or mistakes or just... uh, yeah. Just being an idiot uh, when all of a sudden all the emotion comes up out yeah. of nowhere. We think of emotion as the as sort of oppositional to rationality, but there's also research on this that shows that if you kind of knock out somebody's ability to experience emotion, what you don't get is like really hyper rational, smart Vulcans. behavior. Yeah. You get really erratic and really um, bizarre behavior because emotion is actually part of our intelligence. Mm. Um, and we, we need it to guide us. So, and, and, and again, to kind of wrap back to your question, yes, in yoga, in parkour, in any physical practice, you actually have the potential that emotion will reveal itself to you in a very profound and um, powerful way. So I know lots of people in parkour who've had experiences where they did something and felt this rush of emotion and had crying. I'm not, I haven't really had that, um, personally. Um, I mean, I get rushes of emotion, but they're just like, ah, yay, I did it. This is cool. Um, like that's the emotion that keeps me going. What, um, one experience I did have is 
Well, I was choked really violently by one of my friend's fathers when I was 12 years old. And so every time I have a body worker work on my scalenes uh, uh, or sternocleidomastoid, I just tense up. Like I just I can feel angry. I feel really tense. It's very hard for me. Even if I was just to do a body scan and feel my that area of my body, I can feel the tension start to develop. Just becoming aware of that area elicits the emotion. Um, and I uh, so there's this idea that 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 this is um, neurologically connected to the psoas. So I was doing some really intense psoas stretching with. Uh, one of my students who's also a movement teacher down in Australia. Um, he's uh, a teacher under a method called stretch therapy. And he was doing this partner, this intense partnered psoas stretch with me. And all of a sudden I just burst into tears. And like, I was just so overwhelmed with emotion because it hmm. took me, it just took me back to that moment. Um, and so th there is this potential within movement modalities to, to do this. Uh, Again, I'd point people who are interested in this to Mark Walsh's work, um, which kind of deals with this, to Kit Lachlan and stretch therapy, and my, my, my friend Dave Wardman as well, who um, does something called physical alchemy, which is a lot about using physical practices to, to be able to shift and regulate internal states again. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But, but this is something that goes back you know, thousands of years in the idea of like eternal alchemy and the Taoist traditions. Like we yeah. can't. We can change how we experience the, the world, how we engage in cognition, how we engage in emotion through physical practice. It's, with that experience of going back to that 12-year-old moment when, when you were thrust out of control, pretty almost maybe to the extent that you could have died in that situation. Yeah, yeah. But have you, in the process of interacting with that over time, have you figured out how movement... Uh, allows you to let go or to absorb the power that you lost in that moment or or to overcome the anger or is it just kind of something that that's there that's just kind of stamped on on the body um i would say that over time i've gotten better at releasing it that particular one uh has been not so easy to release hmm. um but yeah as a, as a general trend i would say that my physical practices have been really powerful and helping me learn to regulate my emotional responses and my reactivity. Mm -hmm. And you're less of a dick on the internet. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank uh, you so much for your afternoon, Rafe. Um, Rafe, um, what's the next event that you guys are doing? You mentioned something in August. Is there something uh, in July too? Or? Um, yeah. Uh, so August 2nd through the 8th, Return of the Source, which... Um, we may have one or two spots left. I don't know when people okay. see this. If they want to reach out and see if there's a spot left, uh, they're welcome to. Um, but probably uh, the spots will be for the, uh, our October event, um, which is the 3rd through the 6th, the Autumn Retreat, which is going to be a beautiful event. It's going to be four days um, featuring some of the most beautiful spots around Seattle and Bellingham, Washington. But also that's when the, the apples uh, ripen on my family property and we'll be staying at my family homestead in this beautiful house called the garden house and we will have uh, ripe apple trees all around us and we'll have an apple press and we'll be making apple butter and and it's kind of a, the idea is learning to to regulate the body to accepting the changes in the seasons and how our how our practice has to shift as we move into the 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 dark and, and wet wet times of the year yeah. and kind of taking on the meditative act 
aspects of the practice, learning to accept the cold and how the cold limits us. Um, so I'm really excited about that event. The first year that we're, we're doing an autumn retreat. Um, then we also have two day seminars coming up in San Francisco, Austin, and Los Angeles, which are in, uh, uh, in September. And these are all going to be found on your website. I will link. Evolvemoveplay.com. Yeah. And then uh, I have my own podcast, which people may find really interesting, um, which they can find. uh, It's just Evolve Move Play podcast on uh, YouTube and Spotify and iTunes and all the stuff. And people can find me on social media, Rafe Kelly Movement, on Facebook, Instagram, et cetera.